All right, we are live. Welcome back to another episode of Punch Card Capital. We have uh, a new guest today, CJ. How you doing, CJ? I am doing well, Brad. Thank you. Thanks awesome, awesome. Yep, Frank couldn't be with us. It's the lady's birthday today, so he's out with her. And then Jack is attending a wedding today, so he couldn't be here either. But we've got an action-packed episode. We're going to be talking about Nick Sleep's Nomad Investment Partnership Letters, the first year of that, which was 2002, kind of the, the latter quarter of 2001 into 2002. Um, and yeah, we'll just, uh, we'll just roll with that. So <clears throat> did any of you have anything that really jumped out from the first year of these partnership letters that you wanted to kick things off with? Well, I mean, the guy was buying Costco in 2002. That That's always a good good recipe for success, right? <laughs> right off the bat. Yeah, right out of the gate. Yeah. They, uh, they, they got Costco pretty quickly. Yeah. Ha- have any of you guys looked deep into Costco before? Not not as much. No. Yeah. Mm. Just what yeah, Charlie Munger said. <laughs> yeah, Charlie's on. I wonder how long he's owned it for. I've never, I've never looked that up, but... Um, yeah, I did a, a bit of a dive into Costco, just kind of looking at it through the lens of how Nick Sleep was looking at it in 2002 to see, you know, where does it compare in terms of value today versus 2002? And uh, it is nowhere near where it was in uh, 2002 on like a free cash flow basis. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is no surprise considering what Costco has done over the last two decades. But um, yeah, I really appreciated just how Nick Sleep broke down his investment case for, for Costco. I thought it was just really sharp and uh, enjoyed digging through that. We get into that in the 2004 letter, right? I mean, that's Still, like he really gets into Costco later. You're right. That is 2004. Yeah, I, I jumped ahead there. Um, yeah, it's more about stagecoach and um, international speedway. Yeah, all those things. Yeah, the the, the mistake with Monsanto. I was impressed that he actually laid out like a, a mistake yeah. that the company made. Although I, I don't think they lost money on it, uh, but it, it was a mistake in terms of. Um, something happening that was that was unexpected with with the thesis. One thing that really jumped out at me uh, straight off the bat was they made 18 investments. Like the, the fund opened the day before 9-11. And by the end of the year, you know, they, they had made 18 investments in the first four months uh, all over the world. And their framework at this point was really looking for 50 cent dollar bills. And so I was I was just impressed that they were able to find so many things. I mean, I know they had been working in that industry for a while, so they probably had some things up their sleeve uh, by then. But, you know, no geographical limits in terms of what they were willing to look at. Hmm. What do you guys think when they were, like, measuring themselves against the um, index? I mean, he said it was not meaningful, but, you know, what are your thoughts about, like, comparing your performance to the index? All of yeah, I, I think I'm getting maybe a little bit of feedback from you, Karan. I don't know if the other guys are as well. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I mean, in the in the first he, – he sort of – he talks a lot, a lot about the Buffett partnership in the 50s, I found. So yeah. he's sort of recommending that his investors give him a, you know, a, sort of a five-year period minimum for – benchmarking and that allows him to invest sort of as he described it with some sort of competitive advantage where he's got a much longer time horizon than other investors so um i mean at the end of the day you've got to benchmark yourself against something whether it's absolute returns if you've got some percentage target in mind i think or against the index which i guess is the alternative for his as investors so i think it's a it's a good way to approach it but um yeah, he t- was definitely trying to get across the message to not benchmark him on that quarter to quarter per se. <laughs> you know, look at him over over several years. Yeah, 
Um, one, one quote that stood out to me from Warren Buffett in 1960 in a letter from Buffett in 1960, I have pointed out that any superior record which we might accomplish should not be expected to be evidenced by a relatively constant advantage in performance compared to the average. Rather, it is likely that if such an advantage is achieved, uh, it will be through better than average performance in stable or declining markets, uh, an average or perhaps even poorer than average performance in rising markets, which, Mm. you know, it, it makes me think of, when, when markets are going crazy, right, when there's these strong bull markets, everybody's always hating on, on Buffett and Berkshire for, for underperforming, right? But that's basically the plan, right? It's built into the plan that this is what's going to happen given their approach. So just thought that was interesting. Yeah, and to go yeah. along with that, um, when you he kept reiterating, especially at the end of some of the, the quarterly letters, how – please be patient. You have the long time horizon in order for this plan to work out. Because yeah, as you said, in down markets, he's going to be up and in our markets, he might be down. So, but, yeah, yep. He had the right people with him as well along for the ride. That's one of the big things if you're managing other people's money, I, I think it's really important, underrated. Absolutely. And yeah, in every, the end of every letter, he kind of reiterated that for any investors that might've just been coming on. Um, I think that was, that's really important. Yeah. Hmm. What do you guys think of the stagecoach investment? I found that to be very interesting. Shows you the power of management, you know, the founder led idea. And, everything. Mm-hmm. and the, and shows you the negatives of, um, what's Peter Lynch call it? Diversification. <laughs> sort of, um, and I think he compared it to Coke at one point there too, right? Where Coca-Cola yeah. is like this crown jewel business that is so good that the management team, I think, will almost run out of ideas of what to do with the capital. So they start buying more mediocre businesses. And I think that sounds like that's kind of what happened with Stagecoach and it slowly just got worse and worse and worse. And then they had to backtrack a little bit, right? And get back on on just focusing on the UK business? I think a lot, yeah. They had to backtrack. I mean, they were trying to scale this thing, what, Scandinavia, Hong Kong, New Zealand, the US, and it just wasn't it wasn't working. It, it, the cookie-cutter approach just wasn't, wasn't uh, bearing fruit. So, mm. yeah, they brought the founder back and said, hey, you know, write the ship. Figure it out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And he did. Would you guys consider that a turnaround situation where possibly because it's a, it, first of all, it's amazing that, you know, a business that's, that's going downward, you can bring in, bring in an old guy and he writes the ship. That's, that's pretty unusual. So I don't know if you guys thoughts on that because. Yeah. I. Sorry, CJ, you go ahead. Nope. I, I was done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, I think, um, it's sort of it's a turnaround when you look at it at the overall business level, but in some ways it's not because it sounds like the core original business was still sort of performing well. It's kind of just um, what's the Charlie Munger quote that was in that letter, like cutting away the cancer or something. Yeah, that's the surgery approach. So it's getting rid of all the all the all the bad stuff. And I don't want to downplay how tricky that probably was to sell off businesses and probably fire people and the process and so on. But in some ways, I think that probably is an easier job than taking a mediocre business like, um, you know, what's up, like say what Sergio Marchioni did with Chrysler, for example, and turning around an actually poor business that was underperforming. I'd, I'd argue that that's probably a lot more challenging. Yeah. yeah. What do you guys think about that? With both the investments, say Costco and Stagecoach, they both have this underlying theme, which is easy to understand, but hard to actually operate. I feel like he tried to get that theme across both the investments that he was talking about. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Do the simple things right. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. You know, I think a little bit about, and I haven't gone too deep into Apple and what happened when Steve Jobs left and when he came back, but that's kind of what that made me think of. Apple kind of they they got off course, and Steve Jobs came back, and he's like, "Okay, we're gonna 
get back to simple and do this thing really well. This is our bread and butter. So that's what I think about. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like this is more of a, uh, as Padraya put it, like a focus mousetrap approach. So mm -hmm. focus on the one business. But in the same letter, he talks about how there's always a main business that kind of spawns other businesses. I think the spawner framework came initially from this first letter, this 2002 letter. Mm -hmm. Talks about how there's this one jewel at the heart of a business, mm -hmm. which can you know produce the cash flow that you can invest into other spin-offs and anything else. I think that's kind of where the spawner framework really started from. Mm -hmm. Is that something that came across? It's on 18, page 18, if you guys have it. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the whole spawner framework's interesting. It's sort of like, a, it's almost like these little VC-style startups that, <laughs> that businesses are trying to kick off. And clearly, sometimes it works very well. Like you have Alibaba start Taobao, for example, and like that becomes the main business for a very long period of time, or still probably even is today. But then other times you you have this um, this stagecoach situation where it just flops. So I don't really know what to take away from that. <laughs> Cesar, what are your thoughts about the whole spawner framework? And I th I think it's um, it's a very interesting concept. Um, Basically, I would just translate it to look for long-term compounders. And um, for me, it's hard to get over the hurdle of maybe retroactive fitting of, uh, you know, you look at Facebook, but when it, Facebook IPO, did we know that it was going to be a spawner? But now we can see that clearly it's, it's, it's got some characteristics of a spawner. So that's my main hang up with the, the spawner framework. But I mean, if you can find a business that's selling cheaply with those characteristics, then obviously it's an, it's an, got to be a no-brainer. But yeah. mm. you have to have a very keen keen mind. I think Pabrai is capable, so <laughs> that's why I'm always looking forward to his his insights for those. Are there any companies that you see that kind of fit this framework, or need your own portfolio? Um, well, I think. Alibaba is definitely one, uh, but I don't think that's any shock or surprise to any of us here. Um, they, they are very rare. I mean, that might be the only one in my portfolio right now, to be honest. Um, few and far between. I haven't looked into Shinikin much, although I believe that Herbari thinks that's a spawner as well. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. It seems like there's something that um, there'd be a lot of like survivorship bias in, right? Yeah. There's probably yeah. for every Alibaba and Facebook and Amazon, there's got to be hundreds of, <laughs> of stage coaches that didn't get turned around. Mm -hmm. um, Brad, I know you've done quite a bit of work on survivorship bias. So you've, you've put up a few videos on survivorship bias. Did you have any thoughts on how that sort of fits into the whole spawner framework or, or even something like the hundred bagger for, like you know hundred baggers by chris meyer is a classic like he's got a big survivorship bias disclaimer right at the front of that book you know yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's it's the main source of skepticism that i have when i look at a book like a hundred baggers or a hundred to one in the stock market yeah. um I mean, you're not seeing the graveyard of companies that, you know, may have looked like those hundred baggers in the early years and just aren't around anymore to examine. Um, so I think it's a huge issue. And I think uh, it can't be overstated enough in terms of needing to be aware of it. Um, and, I, you know, I think, I think that's partly why Chris Meyer seems to focus on you know, in his book, he, he said, you know, these hundred baggers at the beginning, they were sort of a 500 million market cap company to, to kind of begin the journey to 100 bagger them. And he doesn't own anything under like 2 billion in market cap. So uh, I'd be interested to ask him that. But my sense is he wants to see a company that has proven that they have this long-term compounder kind of DNA 
and he's willing to give up some of that extra potential gain to have that peace of mind, that certainty that, all right, this thing, you know, has legs. But mm. there's probably some wisdom to that. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Yeah, go ahead. No, all yours, Karan. Okay. Uh, yeah, with a lot of smaller companies, one of the main risks that people, I think, don't account for is the risk of getting acquired. Because if they are great businesses, if they are spawners, there are going to be other capital allocators that recognize that and get on it, you know. They're going to merge those companies quickly. And I don't think people really account for that as much. I'm sure Frank would probably have a good um, insight about that since he kind of focuses on the microcaps. Yeah. Now, I, I haven't really... I don't think I've owned any companies that have been acquired. Well, is, is there a potential upside in that? Because usually they're acquired above, you know, the, the current market price. How do you see that, Karan? So let's take our favorite example, Heritage. Right? Yeah. If someone was to go ahead and put in a bid or Eddie Lampard decides to take a private, we lose out on all the potential upside that we could have at like, ridiculously low prices right up to now. So, right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you get sort of the short-term pop maybe from someone comes in and pays a 20% premium to the current right. market price, but you miss out on a, you know, potential home run, you know, a few years out. So. Yeah, if it survives. <laughs> mm. yeah. um, one, one of the other things that I found quite interesting in, in Nick Sleep's letter was, how he spoke about the market value of his portfolio versus where he saw intrinsic value. Right. I think in the first, in the first letter he spoke about, you know, he thought as it was a very specific number. I think mm -hmm. he said something like, I think my portfolio is trading at 51 cents on the dollar or something. Yeah. Um, have, have you guys ever performed that sort of analysis on your own portfolios? Because that's actually a thought that has gone through my head fairly often as I have, you know, when I have, say, quite a few new stocks in the portfolio, you know, I might think my, my portfolio is trading at 60 cents on the dollar or something. But, um, you know, as I've had some investments where the thesis has started to play out, it's almost like that gap is sort of narrowed and we're getting closer to 100 cents on the dollar, which is great because the investments have worked out. But it's also presumably means there's lower returns moving forward because you haven't got this big gap you know yeah ideally you want to sort of be at a big gap to intrinsic value at all times to get high forward returns but at some point i guess the investments do have to play out i suppose i'm just interested to, to hear if that's something you guys have thought through before yeah i i haven't done that and you know it seems like the framework for that is you know when you buy a 50 cent dollar bill you're you're hoping it converges with kind of a, a static, in a sense, intrinsic value, and then kind of moving on to the next thing. Sure. Um, and I think that's that's where Nick Sleep started out. Like, that was his thinking, and that's kind of where this comes from. Um, but I would guess, you know, I don't remember exactly at what point, but I guess a few years in, he, he probably stops referencing that, Um because he's looking at maybe holding these for for the long term, so that's that's my thought. Yeah, so it doesn't account for any growth in intrinsic that's value, right. basically. Yeah, yeah. Is it is this something you've thought about at all, CJ? Not really. Um, Brad brought up a good point that I like to see the needle continually moving. So, mm -hmm. um, no, but I, I don't know. For some reason, I, I just have only focused on the individual positions, but the portfolio as a whole. No, that's that's an interesting thought, though. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I'm completely blanking on the name, but Toby Carlisle Toby had someone on his podcast a few weeks back talking about this exact concept, actually, and he used to put it in their investor letters. And every few years, they'd go back and look at how predictive that price to intrinsic value estimate was of Ford returns. And um, over shorter timeframes, as you probably expect, it was not that predictive. Like if you were looking over six months or a year, but mm -hmm. when he was looking out three or five years plus, it was actually a very predictive metric. You know, <laughs> even though it was, of course, just an just an estimate. Like intrinsic value is not a 
figure you can obviously look up on a financial statement or anything, but um, it turned out to be quite predictive. I, I'm, yeah, again, again, I'm blanking on the numbers, but I quite like that idea. Um, I wonder why Next Sleep dropped it. Maybe it was just this transition to compounders. Yeah, sounds like they were pretty good at estimating intrinsic value. <laughs> yeah, right? for sure. Or, or the market had like stocks only go up, and um, that could be it worked out. <laughs> right, right. How about you, Karan? Do you use any kind of metric like that to keep track of the the overall portfolio? No, not really. I mean, yeah. I think I'm moving more towards Guy Spears' approach of looking at your portfolio less. <laughs> so, <laughs> think about it less. Like, do the upfront work. Think about the business and then let it just sit. Yeah, I'm, I'm working hard on getting there because I personally do look for fifty cent dollar or discounted price, but yeah. you know, it makes more sense to move into the other approach and just buy Alibaba and sit for the next ten years. So you're working hard towards inactivity, is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> yes. Perfect. <laughs> I don't think the people who are like industrial unitor are going to be happy to hear that but no i was actually just about to ask you that karan how do you do you get a lot of feedback asking you saying swing you bum or something or <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've actually started like consolidating the portfolio into like started concentrating the portfolio into the highest conviction ideas and kind of just sticking with them rather than the you know six months and 12 months and we're going to be getting this great return well, you'll have to start writing a quarterly letter, and in the last paragraph, you can keep reiterating why you're not swinging, right? Help educate you. I still you. have to make the monthly update videos. That's it. That's still <laughs> going to be a thing. <laughs> they, could be, they could all be 30-second videos of you saying, here's the numbers, I haven't done anything, see you in a month. <laughs> that, that was a plan for next month. It was like, yep, nothing's changed. Everything's pretty much the same. Refer see to the last video. <laughs> Well, that's I, I haven't gotten to the later next sleep letters, but um, listening to Monish, it sounds like the next sleep letters start to get a little bit like that, don't they? Yeah. Has Has anyone read read those later years where he was just you know heavily concentrated in the in three names? I'm at like two thousand five six. Right? Yeah, me too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll we'll get to that, but uh, we will. Yeah, hearing Pabri hearing talk about it, it sounds like you know. Um, Nick's like, Nick, it's Nick and Zach, isn't it? Um, we're, we're saying, you know, we've basically done nothing this year and we think that's a job well done. <laughs> so uh, thank, thank us later. We'll see you next year. May, may we all get to that point. Yeah. I'm going to pop up a comment yes. here. I have uh, something else you need to bring up actually in the, in the letters. Um, okay. So with regards to Costco and Jim Senegal, in terms of the integrity of the management, is that mm. something, I mean, what about that part? Like, is there something that made you think about how you would evaluate management or, you know, have your thoughts towards that changed after the letter? Uh, I, I don't think my, for me personally, I, I don't think my thoughts have necessarily changed, but it it reinforced the idea of management integrity. Um, uh -huh. And one of the ways I've tried to assess that in the past is basically just to go back a few years and say, you know, what were management raving on about three years ago? And are they have they executed on that firstly? Uh, and if they haven't, have they, you know, done something like Warren Buffett would do or like Next Sleep would do and said, yeah, we stuffed that up, but let's keep moving on? Or did they just try and put that under the rug and, and never talk about it? I, I, it, re it reminded me a lot of those ideas. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty, just the, yeah, sticking with, you know, the, those core values of, hey, you know, we're here to serve the customer, we're here to deliver, you know, savings, pass on the savings to the customers, and that's our long-term growth plan, and there's that flywheel of savings lead to more revenue, lead to better negotiating power with, with suppliers, and it's just this long-term flywheel. Uh, where the profits take a long time to really show up uh, for investors. It's the same thing that, that Amazon has done over the decades. And uh, it's a rare model, but such a powerful one when, when you find it. It's compounding goodwill, right, with the customers. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. 
Uh, I'm going to pop that one up here. Yep. After dinner, investor, our, our buddy, should we look at restaurants or retail as spawners if they're growing store count across the country? So, you know, I think of Domino's, I think of uh, Chipotle, things like that. Are, are those spawners? What do you guys think? No, I, I view spawner as new new lines of business, generally not growing existing lines of business. Oh, I mean, maybe you could look at McDonald's launching a breakfast menu as a spawn, but I don't think that McDonald's growing its store count as a spawn, if that makes sense. that That's how I would think about that. McDonald's investing in Chipotle would be kind of a spawn. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I, I think just growing the current business, I wouldn't classify it as spawning. I mean, at the end of the day, like if you if you've got a Costco or a McDonald's or a Domino's and you can just run that compounding engine for a long time, like who really cares if it's a spawning of a new business or not? Like right. <laughs> it's working. Um, yeah. Each individual I, franchise has a lot of power. So yeah. yeah, I think retail and restaurants both are more focused. Mouse traps like they're more. Like they develop within, they, they innovate within the business. It's not that they have unrelated related diversification as such. Yep. Yeah. What about a company like Yum Brands that owns several different uh, KFC, Taco Bell, things of that nature? Would that fall more into the spawner category for any of you? Still food. I mean, still yeah. the same stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Are they, uh, I haven't looked much at Young Brands, but are they, well, they mustn't be starting these things. They're, they're acquiring. Right. Yeah. They've really. got to be acquiring them. Yeah. It's more of the Berkshire Hathaway model, I suppose, but right. more focused holding, on holding food. Company. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, and, and then, sorry, you go, Brad. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk about something unrelated. You can finish the, the thought here. Uh, it's escaped my brain. So you go. <laughs> Uh, I was doing a little research on Domino's uh, a little while back and looking at the performance over the last decade. I mean, it's been a, what an 18 bagger over the last 10 years, 34% CAGR. I think it's done better than Amazon. So, you know, simple business like that, if it's executed, you know, with incredible attention to detail and cost savings can just kind of produce mind boggling results. Yeah, and they've had um, both the two sort of hundred bagger, um, you know, things working in their favor with earnings growth and a lot of multiple expansions. So you right. get that double whammy of return. Right. I think with restaurants, the new um, thing that they're doing with the cloud kitchens and mm. ghost kitchens, mm. I think that's kind of the new wave of kind of, I don't know how you would call it, but like, you know, when in phones, like they have, phone cycles like i think that's like the new cycle that restaurants are going to be using to grow their business in the future are you guys familiar with the concept of cloud kitchens Vaguely. not really no mm-hmm. so rather than opening us. a new storefront yeah i actually so there's this podcast business breakdowns where they go yep. through Chipotle, yeah and that's kind of where i got the idea from um so if a restaurant wants to kind of try out a new market Rather than going and opening a new restaurant with a physical space, you could just go out with a cloud kitchen, um, have delivery only, and kind of test the market. If it works out, great, you know, you can you know, get into the market a bit more, but yeah. Right, so it's just a, it it's just a, it's just a bare-bones kitchen. You don't need to have the seating space or any of that, that other, other overhead to get started. Correct, yeah. And suppose you're a company like Yum Brands, um, you can have multiple restaurants, basically like KFC, pizza, and so on, everything in one kitchen, and then just yeah. deliver it from that one kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Great way to try new concepts, new ideas. You can launch an entire restaurant that's delivery only. I don't know. It's an interesting model. Mm, I think sure. the time Uber is like completely in this right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like afternoon investors' comment here. Grew up in a ghost kitchen. <laughs> Let me see. If I, can... <laughs> uh, I thought you. Were, I thought you were looking at his Domino's comment. A <laughs> uh, little shout out to Will Farrell there, huh? 
You guys, I don't know if you've done much with, on Twitter with the GIFs. I, I just, I go down this rabbit hole with finding the perfect GIF. It's so much fun. I love that that's a part of the Twitter experience. What would you say is your average time spent per GIF posted? <laughs> you know, it's actually pretty quick because it's so good at finding the perfect one for me. Uh, you know, I scroll right. maybe a couple screens down, but it's uh, pretty quick. Mm. Yeah, is yeah. that like um, is it like, is it actually quick though, or is it like TikTok quick, where you go to spend five minutes on TikTok and three hours goes by? It's possible that it's the latter. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Don't That's download cool. TikTok. It's it's a disease. Yeah. Where else do you get a financial <laughs> advice from? Yeah. Good point. <laughs> Brad, it's the one place I've seen Charlie Munger and Will Smith in the same. Same message. Right, right. Yeah, that was Amazing. a recent one. You caught that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm looking at other comments here. Let me know you if you guys really ask our audience if they've read Nick Sleep's letters. Oh yeah, we should do that. Let's, let's, let's pull the audience. If you guys have read Nick Sleep's investment partnership letters, even if it's just one year, let us know in the comments. And if you yeah. haven't, we'll give you a little slap on the wrist. We can we can do that. We will include yeah, a link yeah. to the letters, I think, in the description. Yeah, we should. Mm -hmm. People can. Keep. We should. I guess that means me. Uh, yeah, Iggy. You're, you're Jack this week. The Iggy Foundation, which is his nonprofit. Yeah. Did any of you feel like you were reading Warren Buffett when you read these early letters? I, I just felt like he talks about the exact same things. He's as transparent as Buffett. I mean, I don't know. I would have loved to have him as my manager. <laughs> That's for damn Yeah, I mean, I think he got a lot of inspiration from Buffett. I don't remember. I think he even has it in the letters how, or maybe it's in the book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, how, you know, they went to the first Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting and it was just like this whole new world that opened up that, that they were kind of missing in, in their previous investment career. So he was a big inspiration. And I love that the partnership letters start with the kind of exchange of letters between Nick Sleep and Warren Buffett yeah. when he decided to shut it down. That was cool to see. Mm. Yeah. And j just the, you're right. The way he sort of speaks to investors is very reminiscent of particularly the early Buffett leaders. Like if you've ever read the, the 1950s partnership leaders, um, I mean, even the way he categorized some of his investments as workouts is exactly what Buffett did um, in some of those older letters, right? Hmm. Uh, so we've got, are there, uh, we're just going to keep going with after dinner investor because he's really pitching in here. Uh, are, there the any, are there any spawner examples other than Amazon and Alibaba? Absolutely. What have you guys got off the top of your head for spawner? examples I, I was just gonna say yes and then hand it over to you guys <laughs> <laughs> well we mentioned facebook i think is um a cloner and an, an embryonic i think and they also yeah. acquire businesses as well uh, microsoft uh, ten, 10 cent comes to mind microsoft um berkshire are more of an acquirer of businesses but they were in pebrai's list at least yeah. Um, and if you want to go down that rabbit hole, you could probably add things like Markel to the list or, uh -huh. hey, Daily Journal Corporation's a spawner. They're, they're starting yeah. a um, software, mm -hmm. software as a service business, right? So, Yep. Uh, in, in the 2021 free lunch portfolio from on Pabrai's blog, he lists the five spawners that were included in the last batch. So Berkshire Hathaway is actually listed as one of them. Uh, Restaurant Brands International, which gets at our last discussion about restaurants. Uh, Starbucks, Microsoft, and Brookfield Asset Management. So mm -hmm. it seems like his definition of spawners is perhaps more broad than what we're speaking about here. Chamath? Chamath. Chamath. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> There's no way to invest in that yet, though. And I don't know if anybody's yeah. going to want to after. Uh, who was it that totally roasted Shamash? 
Bloomstrand. Chris Bloomstrand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's brutal. Yeah, R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> I've mentioned this in the past, but I, I think Palantir could be a spawner. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just looking at the way they're investing into... So I don't know if you guys have looked into their Skywise business. So they have this partnership with Airbus where they developed this new platform to kind of um, improve, like simplify the entire supply chain of the airline industry. And through that, they've been making other investments. And that's in a new SPAC. I mean, it, it sounds very you know, speculative and everything, but for a company to actually work on its area of expertise, invest in those businesses, seems like a spawner to me. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have to get it at a reasonable price, which is a <laughs> whole different thing. Yeah. Who knows what that is, right? Yeah. What about... What about um, you After dinner, it. investor just said it. Uber. <laughs> I was about to say that. Uber Eats, the sure. cloud kitchen sure. concept. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just about to ask Karan if he saw um, Pershing Square as a spawner. Yeah. I mentioned that also. I mean, that I think is a very obvious spawner because it's literally spawning out SPACs, new deals, new companies, bringing, bringing companies from the private market to the public market. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that's like a obvious spawner. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to take a question from Frank here. Uh, CJ's thoughts. CJ, we're going to put you on the spotlight um, and everyone else. Investing across different sectors, would you be willing to be concentrated into 50% into just one sector, tech, for example? How do you diversify across sectors or how do you guys think about diversification across sectors? I personally don't really give it much thought at all, to be honest. Um, if I think I understand the business and I think that the chances of me losing money in that business are zero to, to extremely low, then I don't care what sector it is in, basically. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I'd be What's willing to 50% in one sector. <laughs> <laughs> Would you be willing to be 100% in one sector? Yeah. What's the highest allocation that you've had in any one high conviction idea? Um, post for initial initial investment or? Yeah, I mean, app. either on a cost basis. On a cost, um, basis. cost basis. Um, probably about, I think, 25 or 30%. Um, so, I mean, yeah. Not, nothing too too wild, in my opinion, but. I think that's like the wrong way we all yeah. are. Yeah. Karan's not saying it, but he's like, CJ, that's chump change. <laughs> all in, all in, baby. <laughs> well, yeah, 30, 40% is a good number. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm in the same ballpark as CJ on that one. Uh, Scotty, do you know if Nick Sleep took considerable time to write and craft each letter like Buffett does? I haven't actually heard the backstory about how much time Buffett spends. Do you guys, Tom, do you have do you have a sense of that? I know you follow Buffett pretty closely. Um, uh, what's her name? Carol Loomis has talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, supposedly he starts putting the letter together, like, basically straight after the previous letter comes out. Uh-huh. That's what I've heard. Um, I imagine it's something like a scrapbook where throughout the year he kind of pulls things that are relevant and puts it together yeah. at the end. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, who knows really, but yeah. that's that's what I've heard through the grapevine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But presumably Nick Sleep's doing mm. the same thing if he's just um, got the feet up on three stocks after a few years. Yeah, he's got time, right? Mm. So here's here's one. Can we talk about sleep investing in Zimbabwe and Thailand? Um, what did you guys think if you came across that? I don't think it was in the first year, but uh, the currency risk with, with Zimbabwe and, and some of these other countries, do you have a take on that? I mean, I, I immediately think of Pabrai investing in. Uh, Turkey and how, you know, they could be operating in seashells. He doesn't care. Um, mm-hmm. Curious if you guys have thoughts about that. Zimbabwe is later, right? Isn't it? 
Thailand is here, but Zimbabwe is here. Yeah. I remember that being covered in Richer, Wiser, Happier. Yeah. Okay. Right. What did they say in Richer, Wiser, Happier? Um, I'm blanking on the the exact details. Um, I'm trying to remember what type of company it was in Zimbabwe. Was it a cement company or? Yeah, right, right, right. Something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I'm blanking on the name too, but yeah, it was a cement. On the silent investment, I think the business that he found, I think again, he was also like a just kind of focusing on the business and how dominant the business is. The founder led the owner, the owner orientation. I think that was the focus. It wasn't as much about Thailand. Mm-hmm. Is this the newspaper company that was selling for three quarters of, of Ma- sales? Ma- something Ma- like Ma- that? Okay. Ma- yeah. yeah. It's no interesting that he was even looking mm-hmm. in Zimbabwe. Um, that's just not, mm-hmm. not one of the common hunting grounds for, I don't even know if I can invest in Zimbabwe, so it might just be off the table immediately. Uh-huh. No. Yeah, I, think I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that's the idea they're going for the illiquid positions that are small caps, so they can really get the outsized returns. Right, Karan. Question for you: When you put on these large at cost positions, what percent are you able to contribute new capital relative? portfolio it's it's still a process that i'm thinking about because um yeah it's it's come to a point where the new contributions don't have an effect on the overall portfolio so Mm -hmm. i'm trying to figure that out on my own so Mm -hmm. tbd yeah we've got a question about tracking annual returns if dollar cost (laughs) averaging on say a monthly basis, how, do, how would you track your returns over time? Um, this is going to sound like a plug, so apologies Uh-oh. if it does. But, plug, but I'm plugging, I, I'm plugging. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, just, I just use ShareSight to calculate it because mm-hmm. it's really hard to calculate if you're constantly adding money to your portfolio. It's not like if you start 1st of January with a fixed dollar amount and then end of the year without contributing or pulling out any money. That's really easy to calculate an annual return, but if you're putting in random amounts of money in like every month, that's pretty complicated. So, um, yeah, ShareSite was started in New Zealand and I just used that. Tom, do you have a discount code for ShareSite? <laughs> I, I knew this was going to, we didn't, we didn't arrange this, people watching. <laughs> I, oh, I this do. is so I, awkward I, for you, Tom. Yeah, oh, I, I, feel too, I feel too salesy if I just tell you my <laughs> discount code. If you really want to check it out, it's in the link, of all, it's in the description of all my videos, so I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, anything else in the markets that you guys are seeing that you want to, you know, bring up and, and powwow about? I'm looking at well, Hindu Duo. Uh-huh. Um, that was the first interest was as a competitor of Alibaba, and secondly because Li Lu is also has a a small right. but a position nonetheless. So sure, um, that's that's what I've been kind of digging into. I, CG, I, I, yeah, go ahead, Karan. CJ, do you have any thoughts about Taobao deals versus Hindu Duo? Um, the gamification initiative. I think. I, I defer this opinion to Lillian Lee, who's a, an excellent uh, analyst of Chinese tech companies. And she says that it might be a little bit too too little too late for Taobao deals. Um, so I'm just going to go with that assumption. Um, I don't think it's going to be nothing for the business, but it's probably not going to be able to overcome Pinduoduo. I, I mean, they just passed Baba's active yearly users. Mm-hmm. Um, with their app. So, I mean, it might be hard to, to claw, claw some of that back, a lot of that back at least. Um, I think the core business of Pinduoduo seems a lot um, stronger in a way, isn't it? Like the e-commerce at least. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Brad. Um, yes, yeah, CJ, I assume you listened to the Investors Podcast with Stig kind of talking about Pinduoduo as, as one of his two or three 
potential investments for 2021. Did you listen to that one? I have not listened to that. I listened to the uh, business breakdowns episode actually. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. They have a, they had a, yeah, a couple weeks. That's, that's one he referenced. That was, that was pretty good. I think it was like two hours, right? Just on Pinduoduo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I found out, I think through that, that uh, the founder of Pinduoduo had lunch with Buffett the year before Moniz Pabrai and Guy Spear had lunch with Buffett. Which I was like, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I tweeted that and Guy Spear didn't know that. So that was, that was kind of fun. <laughs> yes. Winning. Teaching the masters. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah. Anything else? Any, any questions you guys have? Pop them in there. Any questions that you three or, or us four have to, to throw out there? Just to, to bang around. How's your magic formula portfolio doing? Any How's, other IDTs? Any other what? IDT? Potentially? Uh, potentially. I don't know. Um, we'll have to wait for uh, Connor's next quarterly high conviction bet. Um, it's performing well. It was, it was actually Jesse who ran like a XIRR on, on my magic formula portfolio versus the S&P 500, I guess I'm not doing as well as I thought I was. But uh, the, the five that I bought a year ago are, I think, up 65%. So compared to the S&P, which is up, I think, 42% or something, which 42% for the S&P 500, that's like better than any year since the 1950s. It's just insane for for you know, 500 large caps to be doing that kind of performance. Um, so it's, it's wild times that we're in. Mm. Can we, um, can we talk about Ted Wishler's IRA? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've probably, you probably, you probably done the big old on that one, Tom. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's hard to do more work on it because there's very limited information, uh-huh. but by my maths, he's cranked out, um, He's cranked out like 33, 34% a year for 29 years in his, in wow. his IRA. And actually that, that was actually before, um, that was actually before accounting for a big tax hit that he paid when he converted it from an IRA to a Roth IRA. So the compounding rate may well be higher than that. Um, yeah, no, I didn't look deeply into this, but doesn't yeah. that assume no contributions in that 29 years? That uh, I was assuming six thousand dollar a year okay. contributions, All which right. I'm not from the US, but my understanding is that's the max. I don't know what it's been over that full twenty nine year but, period, but, but Tom, I just assumed in, it's in about order seven. for him to have that starting amount in there twenty nine years ago. I mean, it couldn't hmm. have just been those six thousand contributions. There, there must have been some kind of of loophole, I would think, right? Well, uh, well, the the starting number or the the number kind of a handful of years or so into his career that they gave was like 60 or 70 grand. So okay, I okay. think he could, could have got there. Yeah. Sure. Um, but that's obscenely high. Right. So right the contribution, the end result is insane. <laughs> yeah. It's unbelievable. Now I wonder if that was a, you can do like a self-directed Roth IRA in the U S. I don't know if you guys are, are aware of that where you can invest in, you know, things outside of more traditional investments like public companies, you can invest in real mm-hmm. estate. I think you can do private equity. You can do things that you can't typically do in an IRA. So I don't know if that was part of it. Yeah. But. So, so, so the other person that was included in this article was Peter Thiel and um, uh-huh. he did do a lot of that stuff. So yeah. his IRA is more ridiculous. It went from $2,000 to $5 billion. <laughs> um <laughs> And he was doing a lot of that kind of stuff. So, so Ted Wishler was given a heads up that this article was going to get put out on him, and he he actually wrote like a one page statement about the whole thing and okay. gave a few more details. And yeah, he specifically said the account was only ever invested in publicly available securities that anyone could have bought. So, um, yeah, mind blowingly good returns. Uh, there's no 13F for, for that account, unfortunately. Can't see what's well, you happening. Know, no, I would. Yeah, Sorry? yeah. I, if, yeah, Berkshire's in safe hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, if anything, if 
yeah, if anything, it's prompted me to pay far more attention to the smaller stuff in Berkshire's 13F because I've been very guilty uh-huh. of just paying attention to the top 10 and seeing what Buffett's up to. Um, sure. But, yeah, I'm going to look a lot harder at the small things now. So, um, yep. yeah, it's just I, I, I actually had a comment on that video saying 33% is not that impressive. Um, <laughs> which, Wait, um, on the video you just put out? On, on the video I put out. So, Can you um, get that person's info? I want to invest with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I had a lot of thoughts on that comment, but I, I held back. Um, <laughs> but you want to invest in the crypto portfolio? Like. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't. I don't think it was a spam comment. Like it was, they had, um, yeah, not very spammy, you know, you know, their reasoning written out and everything. So, <laughs> yeah, 33% a year is ridiculous. Um, you'll take over the world if you do that for too long. So, yes, very impressive. Yeah. Is anyone familiar with uh, Weschler and Combs returns for Berkshire to date? I don't know if that's very transparent, but no, I haven't really looked into yeah. it, so. it, it. It hasn't ever been listed explicitly, right. but there was a... Um, there was a question at a Berkshire meeting maybe two years ago, and Buffett said that that basically matched the S and P five hundred up yep. until that point. Okay, um, he did go on to say they'd done better than Warren had done, but <laughs> that basically matched the S and P. Yeah, which you know, for for Berkshire's approach, that's that's fine, right? As long as you can kind of gain a little ground when the market is down or or flat, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, um, he did do also like 26% a year in his fund um, over about an 11-year period pre-Berkshire. That's Ted Weschler specifically, not sure on Todd Combs. So impressive question, stuff. Question for you, Tom. Are New Zealand's IRAs capped in terms of uh, annual yeah. contribution? Yeah, so our retirement accounts are called KiwiSaver. Uh, much mm. cooler name, I reckon, than an individual retirement account. I agree. Account. I agree. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can you can choose to contribute. I think it's either three, five, or ten percent of your income to that account. Um, but the investing options are very limited. So basically, you can, if you know what you're doing, you just index it. Otherwise, by default, it gets put into terrible like mutual funds charging two percent management fees and stuff so um you can you can pull out that money when you want to buy your first home or when you turn 65 and your employer matches up to three percent i think so for me personally i just didn't i just contribute the lowest which is the three percent so my employer matches that amount and then um i don't contribute beyond that because the investment options are very limited and I can't touch the money till I'm 65 if I want it. So um, that's the situation here. And is that an inv- invested in like an S&P index or or how are you investing that time? Uh, yeah, so mine, so it's, uh, it's indexed basically, um, but it's spread uh, it's spread I think between New Zealand, Australia and then mm-hmm. like a global equities index of some sort um yeah yeah it's basically 90 percent shares of some sort and some sort of index like that uh and then i think 10 percent in like um fixed interest bonds and things that that's as aggressive as i can possibly make it with uh, with low fees so gotcha cool um after dinner you must not have been here at the beginning Jack is uh, partying tonight uh, at a wedding, but he's not drinking. I don't believe Jack drinks, just like Warren Buffett. You know, he tries to stay clean. Mm. So uh, for what that's worth. Yeah, he does. um, He did put a video out recently about making an offer on a property, though. So that's exciting for Jack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I um, wonder what Jack's dance moves are like at the wedding. Mm. We should have him record should, like a, a YouTube short or something to throw up on, on punch card. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed his um, monetization video. Did you guys see that? Yeah. Of him reaching 4,000 hours of watch time. That was fantastic. <laughs> he got dislikes on that video. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's no explaining the dislikes. Sometimes it's just, it comes yeah. with the territory. 
Um, yeah, anything else, guys? We, we've got one or two minutes left, but anything you want to throw out there? Uh, I'll just quickly answer Luis's follow-up question about something about a top 50. So mm-hmm. um, that's, that refers to a New Zealand top 50 fund investment that I made pretty early on and I still have just hung on to. So that was outside of retirement accounts. That's just me putting money into um, sort of a S&P 500 equivalent in New Zealand, which is a New Zealand top 50 fund. So that's what that was. Hopefully not like the nifty 50. I hope not. Um, it's very <laughs> concentrated, the New Zealand top 50. Like um, I think 30% in the top two. Wow. Or at least it was like that last time I checked. That was a while back though. Yeah. Brad, the Indian index is also called the Nifty 50. So. I but see. That's what I was like. That concentration kind of sounds like the situation in South Africa with NASPERS. They've got a huge concentration on the right. index. Yeah, I thought of I thought of NASPERS when you guys were talking about that. Yeah. Have you guys looked much at NASPERS? A little bit. Starting to dig in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything anything interesting slash open to sharing so far? Let me just hit this one first. I, we missed this last time. Sandy, my question is about investing in a portfolio which has only the top 10 most invested stocks from the top gurus. So if you look at Data Roma, right, most of us have seen the Data Roma website. It shows the top 10 where there's the most super investors invested in those companies. And the idea is what if you just mimic what those top 10 are in a portfolio? What, what are you guys' thoughts on that? Seems legit. Yeah, I guess the, the concern I have about that, I would imagine a lot of the companies that have made it to that top 10 uh, have run up in price quite a bit uh, since mm-hmm. a lot of those investors initially bought in. Um, so that would be my big concern, uh, buying in at kind of frothy prices. Uh, but That's if you dig into nice. the price a little bit and you're able to assess, you know, price to value i think that could be an interesting way to go did data roma have yeah yeah, did data roma have any sort of like index like like super investor index they track or anything like that that that'd be interesting by amount of conviction so the highest portfolio allocation that a super investor has to any particular stock you can filter it yeah but but they don't have like if you just copied the like this question saying if you just copied the ten most bought stocks for the last decade, this would have been your return. Like they don't have a super investor index or anything like that. That's so. there, right? On the front page, the companies that are most picked up by super investor. I think Facebook. Yeah, I think Tom is, Tom is wondering if they've tracked performance. Is that right, Tom? Yeah, yeah. No. So if you just copied the the most invested stocks, what returns would you have gotten over a time period? I haven't seen anything like that. Okay. Yeah, that'd, that'd be interesting to put together. Yeah. I guess that's kind of what Pabri's trying to do with some of his, um, what's he call it, his free lunch or shameless cloner portfolio. Uh-huh. Free lunch, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like I really like the idea of cloning, uh, clearly, because I've done a, little, a fair bit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the challenging part is choosing which investors to clone um, because again, presumably you're going to be cloning people that have had really good track records, but you know, um, potentially some of it's luck, hopefully most of it's skill and the people we're following, (laughs) you know, there's a bit of that going on. Like there's that famous study of if you'd cloned Warren Buffett, you know, these are the returns you would have had, but you know, obviously when you go and back test, what happens if I copy the greatest investor ever? You're probably going to get pretty good returns. So it's like, it's like, how do you find the future greater greatest investors? You know, right? It's how, how do you have a long enough track record that you can tell there's skill there, but yeah. not so much assets under management that it's dragging down the the portfolio? Right? It's it's a fine mm. balance, I think. There's yeah, no and the trouble answer. is, yeah, and the trouble is, you often don't find out you know, who's got skill until they're 40 years down the track and or something or 20 years in, and then they are managing lots of money and you can no longer clone them. It's like a, yep. uh, 
yeah they sort of keep just as you figure out that they're great they sort of drop off <laughs> so you're constantly chasing <laughs> chasing these good investors. that's right if if any of you get dislikes on your videos just remember this comment it's it was an accident it's <laughs> not you it's the like button all right guys i think uh i think that should wrap it up for today thank you all for being here cj thank you for coming on in such short notice Hope to have you back at some point in the near future. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for watching. All right, take care.